From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado cannot force a woman who wishes to design wedding websites to do so for gay couples. We'll unpack the decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Also, hail, flooding, a twister, Colorado's seen it all lately. Today, questions about severe weather here answered by Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. Like, how big can hail get? And what's our place in Tornado Alley? Weld County has more tornadoes than any other county in the United States. Then, how some of the state's biggest colleges view the end of affirmative action. Leaders from various campuses across the state have reacted pretty much the same. Disappointed. How they plan to move forward. And we have a scoop. What has become of a beloved ice cream shop in Delta? The strength of Colorado Public Radio relies on community support. Members like you are essential for CPR to serve Colorado as a trusted community resource. CPR's business year ends today. You can keep this service strong and keep funding goals on target with your contribution before midnight. Help fund in-depth news and music discovery now and in the months to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The U.S. Supreme Court has just ruled on another Colorado case this term. Our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, has been reading the decision in 303 Creative. She'll join us in a bit with its First Amendment implications, what it means for businesses of a creative nature, and what it means for gay people. But we will begin with an almost literal version of the sky is falling. All that hail, plus a twister in the suburbs, flooding rains. And the hail is where we'll start our regular weather and climate chat with Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson of Denver 7. Hi again, Mike. Hey, Ryan. Nice to be with you again. Is there a limit to how big hail can get? I mean, at some point, do physics eliminate the possibility for, I don't know, like volleyball-sized hail? For all intents and purposes, yes. It takes about a 100-mile-per-hour updraft to keep a softball-sized hailstone suspended in the air. So when it's coming down, it's coming down about 100 miles per hour. We don't get much stronger updrafts than that. And so softball to a little bit bigger. I have one that's a, a plaster cast that I've been taking to schools for years and it shows this great big hailstone that's a little bit bigger than a softball that one uh, dug a foot deep crater in the ground when it hit in aurora nebraska about 10 years ago farmer went out grabbed it put in his freezer and then noah up in boulder they made a plaster cast out of it to uh let us take it to schools and stuff like that that's about as big as they get in colorado then yeah and boy that will certainly uh, put a hole right in your roof Lord, if not your head, is where my brain goes. I'm talking to the uh, the insurance adjusters. I have a couple of friends that do roofing and stuff like that. And they said, you know, Mike, we call hail sky diamonds because it brings us business. But uh, we're getting way too much of it this year. Can we just parse that out over a few years rather than just over a few weeks? Hmm. Is there weather you're afraid of? Like, I, I have to say, hearing that makes me afraid of hail and seeing the scenes at Red Rocks makes me afraid of hail. Physically, myself, not scared, but in this business, uh, I get really intense about it when we have a big storm coming in. Uh, a couple of nights ago, we had 
a tornado warned storm that was heading for Akron, Colorado at 11:30 at night. And nighttime tornadoes are particularly frightening, I think, because you, you can't see anything. You're just relying upon what you're seeing on the radar. We don't get a lot of those in Colorado because most of our weather is what we call prime time. It's, you know, 3 p.m. to about 10.30 p.m. But you've seen earlier in the year some of the devastating tornadoes they had down in uh, Mississippi and Alabama that hit in the middle of the night. And that bothers me from a forecasting Mm -hmm. standpoint because people are asleep. You can't warn them. We're going to talk more about twisters in a moment, but I do want to focus a bit more on hail. I am not going to forget those screams I heard in the videos from Red Rocks concert goers. The venue says it's revamping evacuation plans, but also described the hailstorm as a once-in-a-lifetime event. But that doesn't jibe with what you've explained we're seeing in terms of hail activity. We get a lot of hail along the front range, and this is a big year for it. We've had a lot of moisture early, so the soil is full of moisture. You get a warm day, you get evaporation, you get the clouds forming, and you get thunderstorm activity. So this is a big hail year. Some of the drought years, obviously not. But this front range area, because we're a mile closer to the cold air loft, we get an awful lot of hailstorms. And so I would say that's a vast understatement of the threat that we face from hail along the front range. Have you helped events and event spaces plan for severe weather? I mean, I'm curious what a good plan looks like. You know, it's a real hard thing to do with an event like that, because if you stop the concert and you come on the loudspeaker and say evacuate, you're going to have 8,000 people trying to get through those narrow passageways to get to the parking lot at Red Rocks. I'm a little surprised we haven't faced this more frequently in the last 50 years because we can get hailstorms. But the problem there, too, is you think of the steps and the steepness there, and you're not just walking down on rain. You're walking on ball bearings, basically, because you have all these little hailstones, and it's very, very slippery. So it's a tough call. Same thing if you have a baseball game at Coors Field as far as what do you do there. Granted, you have more causeways that you can put people underneath things. But for any large outdoor event, weather is always a big question mark of what do you do? Do you put something on that people panic about? If the storm just misses you by two miles and you've uh, postponed or canceled the concert and everybody's upset, it's never an easy solution. The best thing we can do is give them as much advance notice of the approaching storm as possible. Mm -hmm. This one was tough because the storm developed really fast. You mentioned hail being like ball bearings. And in fact, we know that people broke bones at Red Rocks Uh, not just because of the pelting coming down, but because they tried to evacuate quickly and they had, you know, those small balls of hail beneath their feet. Okay, to tornadoes. What stands out to you about the one that hit Highlands Ranch last week? There's something called a rear flank downdraft, and that actually did a lot of the damage. The tornado itself was not that wide, maybe uh, 150 yards wide. But when we have a big rotating thunderstorm, which we call a supercell, the entire storm is spinning, and the tornado is a small part of that rotation that drops down to the ground. Around the backside of the thunderstorm, it's almost like a right hook in a boxing match. You get these strong winds that rocket down the back of the storm and blast out around it, and that's what's called a rear flank downdraft. Most of the tree damage All the trees blew down in the same direction. That's because that was about a 75 to 80 mile per hour downdraft of straight line winds that kind of swept around the backside 
of this tornado-producing storm. So it's a combination of straight-line winds and the spinning winds that were rather concentrated where the path of the tornado was. Oh, and I had seen the system larger than, you know, a downspout. I had seen the whole system rotating. So the tornado, in a way, is a microcosm of all that twisting going on in the atmosphere. There's a lot of ways a big supercell thunderstorm like that can hurt you. The tornado, the rear flank downdraft, intense lightning, the large hail, These are nasty storms, and this year we've had a lot of them. Tornadoes have certainly hit Denver. Back in the uh, late 80s, we had an outbreak of tornadoes that caused quite a bit of damage in town. Then, of course, the Windsor tornado was an EF3. That's a big tornado this close to the mountains. Uh, So we can get a lot of tornadoes. As a matter of fact, people don't know this, but Weld County has more tornadoes than any other county in the United States. Really? Yeah. It's a combination of being a big county, and then we get a lot of the smaller, what we call land spout tornadoes, that is actually a little bit of a different way that they form. It's not so much a big rotating supercell, but it's surface winds that are swirling together, and they get drawn up into the updraft of a developing thunderstorm. We get a lot of those right along the front range because we have many different wind patterns courtesy of the terrain. We get a lot of small thunderstorms. When a new one forms, it sucks that rotating surface air up and forms a rotating column of air, which is technically a tornado. Now, most land spout tornadoes are not very strong in EF0 or 1, but that can still be winds of about 85 to 90 miles an hour. That'll do damage. Noting that the tornado that touched down at Broadway and Evans in Denver was June 15th, 1988, so 35 years ago this month. Yeah. Can can there be tornadoes in the mountains? Tornadoes can occur in the mountains. About 90% of our tornadoes occur on the plains mm. east of I-25. But we do get some in the mountains. The problem in the mountains is that uh, it kind of restricts that rotating wind column to develop because the terrain is so rough. You don't get a lot of that swirling wind that can be drawn up into a developing thunderstorm. It's just too chaotic. What will the end of tornado season be? Tornado season in Colorado mostly is May and June. And later in the summer, the upper level winds, the jet stream, which tends to give that upper level push of energy to form the rotating thunderstorms, that tends to shift farther to the north up toward the U.S.-Canadian border. So we find that our tornado season tends to taper off in July and August. Then we get slower moving thunderstorms with locally heavy rainfall. So we kind of go from hail and tornadoes. Then we get a period, usually in early July, that's just kind of hot and drier. Late July through August is when the monsoon season starts. And then we get the ponderous, heavy precipitation producing thunderstorms that mostly just drop heavy rain. Well, we should talk about rain. The most in June in Denver since the 1880s. Records broken in Greeley and Colorado Springs as well. That's not a function then of monsoon. Why did this happen? Big soggy storms that started in May. We had a very wet May. Many areas along the Front Range have had a year's worth of rain in the last six or seven weeks because we typically get about 15, 16 inches of moisture in a year. And some places have had that much since the 1st of May. So the soils are just chock full of moisture. And it's the water cycle learned in school. You have the evaporation, then you condensate that into clouds, then you get precipitation. And so just like drought can be kind of a self-perpetuating thing that if the soil is so dry, there's no moisture to evaporate to form clouds and rain, 
The opposite can happen when you get a lot of rain. You pretty much get a daily dose of showers and thunderstorms, and that's what we've seen this spring. Mm. And we're out of drought. There's almost no drought left anywhere in the state of Colorado. Mike, before we go, we always talk about the interplay between climate and weather. Are there reasons to believe the severity of, you know, hail, rain, tornadoes, that climate is at play here in addition to weather? That's a great question. And the answer is a little. Uh, It's way easier to sign heat waves and droughts and stronger tropical storms with heavier precipitation to a warmer world. We've always had tornadoes. We've always had big hailstorms. And it's harder to connect individual weather events like a severe thunderstorm uh, with climate change. Now, it goes to reason that as the atmosphere gets warmer, warmer air can hold more moisture. And so with that, when you have a moist environment, you can get some really strong storms. But it's much more difficult to assign a tornado or a big hailstorm to be uh, uniquely connected to climate change. Mm. Although I'm reminded of the turn of phrase that the scientist Catherine Hayhoe uses, which is that you could think of this as global weirding, uh, that sometimes we get stranger weather out of this phenomenon. That's a very, very good way to put it. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Mike Nelson is chief meteorologist at Denver 7. We speak each month about the interplay between weather and climate in Colorado. Crews are still working to contain the Spring Creek Fire in Garfield County along I-70. Wildfire season is getting longer because of climate change. Meanwhile, firefighters face a big pay cut unless Congress acts, as CPR's Caitlin Kim reports from Washington. Lawmakers from the West are the first to tell you there's no such thing as a wildfire season these days. It's become almost a year-long problem. U.S. wildland firefighters are on the front lines. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso says for years, wildland firefighters have done a lot for little in return. The only way to ensure that we have enough firefighters to defend our forests into the future is to ensure that they are fully supported and compensated. At the end of 2021, wildland firefighters got a big pay boost from the bipartisan infrastructure law, but it's temporary and will go away September 30th. Barrasso is one of nearly a dozen Western senators from both sides of the aisle pushing Congress to act. Here's Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto asking the U.S. Forest Service's Jalith Hall Rivera about the consequences of not acting at a recent hearing. If Congress doesn't pass a bill to extend the pay increase by the time these funds run out, what happens? Well, I think it would be absolutely catastrophic, Senator. I stated earlier, and I'll restate it, our union is telling us they would expect 30 to 50 percent of our firefighting workforce would leave. Paul Rivera says the effects are already being felt. We are starting to see some resignations now. People are not going to wait until September 30th. Congress is considering numerous proposals to improve wildland firefighter compensation, from retirement benefits to affordable housing. President Biden's budget request also includes better pay and benefits. Still, it might be a hard sell in the House, where some are pushing for less spending. Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse of Colorado introduced a bill to make permanent a pay increase, named in honor of Tim Hart, a smoke jumper who died in 2021. Neguse says the money involved is an obstacle. We've made the case that it shouldn't be, that at the end of the day, these are first responders. They are people who are sacrificing a lot to protect us and our families and our communities and our states. And in a future with increasingly more catastrophic wildfires, 
Nagus and Western lawmakers argue it's tough work that deserves adequate pay and benefits in return. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. We'll be right back with a Supreme Court ruling in an important Colorado case just this morning. This is Colorado Matters. News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The U.S. Supreme Court has just ruled on another case from Colorado. At its heart, can a business turn away customers who ask that business to create something it doesn't agree with? We'll break down this ruling, which indeed we've just gotten this morning, with CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ry. The opinion was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, formerly of Colorado. What did the majority decide? The court decided that a Littleton-based web designer should not be forced to create wedding websites for same-sex couples, and that Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act is not allowed to force any business in Colorado to create messages or products that they don't believe in. Here's a quote from the majority opinion. If she, and she is the web designer, if she wishes to speak, she must either speak as the state demands or face sanctions for expressing her beliefs. That is an impermissible abridgment of the First Amendment's right to speak freely. Until today's decision, what did Colorado's public accommodations law entail? Well, it had sought to protect businesses from discriminating against customers from a host of protected classes, race, gender, age, disability, and in 2008, the state added LGBTQ people. So when a bakery, for example, says, I don't want to make a wedding wedding cake for a same-sex couple, that would have been a violation of Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act. And remind us of the specifics of this case. Yeah, yeah. Several years ago, that web designer, Lori Smith, sued Colorado because she says she didn't want to start, she wanted to start making wedding websites, but she doesn't want to make them for gay couples because she says as a Christian that would violate her beliefs. She told state officials she wanted to put a disclaimer on her business's website, explicitly saying she would not create websites for same-sex marriages or, quote, any other marriage not between a man and a woman. But state officials told her they'd consider that discriminatory based on the state's public accommodations laws. And so in 2016, she preemptively sued the state. Imagine telling Taylor Swift that she has to sing whatever lyrics the government tell her to sing because no one writes songs quite like she does. Artists don't surrender their freedom of speech when they choose to make a living by creating custom expression. To be clear, Smith has said her creative objection is specifically tied to her religious beliefs. That's correct. And specifically, and this is really important um, detail, she has said that it's the message she's being asked to create, not the customer who's asking. In other words, Smith has said she's made websites for LGBTQ clients on other things. She hasn't, quote unquote, turned them away at the door because they're LGBTQ. But she doesn't want to be forced to make a product or speak a message. In this case, a message is a wedding website that she doesn't believe in. I'll note this decision comes on the last day of Pride Month. In a passionate dissent, Justice Sotomayor writes, today the court for the first time in its history grants a business open to the public 
a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. What, what did Colorado argue? Yeah, Justice Sotomayor's sentiment there is basically what the state argued to the high court when this case went before them in December, that public accommodations laws, which have been around in various forms since the 1960s and are rooted in the civil rights era, were created to protect classes of people from not being served by businesses, and that for the first time, the high court is sort of chipping away at that. You know, it's, it's saying it's okay to discriminate now against members of one of the protected classes that Colorado has deemed important. Weiser said, this is a quote from him, this case would create a loophole that an individual could say, because I'm offering some product or service with an expressive element, I get to exclude, and you can fill in the blank here, it could be gays or lesbians, it could be Jews or Mormons, or it could be African-Americans. Weiser continued, that would be a revolution in our law that would be a radical step and would undermine this core civil rights commitment that we've had for generations. Weiser, Phil Weiser, the state attorney general, also in her dissent, Sotomayor asks, who will not claim they don't have an expressive service? I'll say that's my question as a gay yep. person. If a surgeon or a barista making foam art says this is an artistic expression for me, can they refuse service? Yeah, it's such a good question, right? Because the court is talking about messages and creative content. But I think Sotomayor said, and the state also argued, that a business selling publicly available goods and service should not be able to discriminate against a group of people, period. And that obviously this ruling opens up this huge slippery slope of what is creative content? What is a custom-made good or service? As you noted in your example, what if a coffee shop made colorful, beautiful lattes and started serving an LGBTQ customer during Pride Month? And they said that and and they decided that serving an LGBTQ customer during Pride Month would violate their beliefs. What if a bartender said his cocktails are custom made and a gay couple came in and asked for one and he said serving a same sex couple violated his beliefs? You know, I think we'll see these fights play out in lower courts starting very soon and in civil lawsuits very soon because it's just so much murkier now. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry on the Supreme Court's decision this morning in the 303 creative case versus Alenis out of Colorado. As you may know, the high court put the kibosh on affirmative action this week, ruling that race-conscious admissions in higher education is unconstitutional. CPR's Paolo Chalcida is looking at how this affects Colorado's colleges and universities. Hi, Paolo. Hi, Ryan. Tell us just a bit more about the ruling. Well, the Supreme Court ruling was based on two cases, one from North Carolina and one centered on Harvard University, both related to affirmative action. In the majority opinion, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the college applicants must be treated based on their experience as an individual, not on the basis of race. Affirmative action policies use race as one of the many factors weighed during admission processes. The justices ruled along ideological lines, so the liberal voting bloc was unable to gain the votes to block the repeal of affirmative action. Why have universities taken race into consideration for their admission policies? Students from underserved communities tend to fare worse on success indicators used by colleges to decide who gets admitted. 
So things like extracurricular activities, college prep resources, and after-school tutoring may not be available for students with lower income or immigrant backgrounds. That means that their applications might not be as attractive to admissions directors. So universities with selective admission policies have used affirmative action to try leveling the playing field a little more. Appreciate that nuance. How are Colorado's higher education institutions reacting then? Leaders from various campuses across the state have reacted pretty much the same. Disappointed. The state's Department of Higher Education denounced the ruling, saying it will create economic disadvantages and missed educational opportunities. Many leaders say they want to find ways to foster diverse classes without affirmative action. CU Boulder says it will prioritize recruitment efforts among students from minority backgrounds, as well as expand scholarships and build more support services for students. Public and private universities have very different enrollment standards. How will the ruling affect those different types of institutions? Yeah, the the end of affirmative action is expected to heavily impact private universities with extremely selective admissions. In Colorado, one university in particular fits that bill. That's Colorado College in Colorado Springs. The private liberal arts college has an admittance rate of about 11% for its most recent freshman class. They said they expect an initial decline in students from historically underrepresented backgrounds. So they they turn away almost 90% of the people who apply. Exactly. Uh Exactly. Uh, Public schools aren't like that. They're going to fare a little better. A lot of places like Metropolitan State University of Denver and community colleges have blanket admission policies. Basically, if you meet minimum standards, you're admitted. No questions asked. So the ending of affirmative action won't matter to them since they don't even look at race in the first place. Public colleges with stricter but still mostly attainable admission rates will see slight impacts most likely. But the impact for public universities will mainly lie in its graduate programs. Graduate, okay. Exactly, which are more selective than undergraduate programs. Here's Dr. Shanta Zimmer, Senior Associate Dean at CU Anschutz School of Medicine. In a medical school in particular, in an MD program, our class size is 184 people, and we have... In the last several years, consistently had around 10,000 or more applicants for those 184 positions. So the opportunity to enroll everybody is, who's excellent is, is not there. That holds true for a lot of graduate programs in Colorado. Paolo, the full effect of the Supreme Court ruling isn't immediately clear because th- this will you know, be teased out over the course of months and years possibly generations. What are higher education leaders wanting to know? Well, Dr. Zimmer, who we just heard from, wants to know how it will impact residential and fellowship medical programs the university sponsors. She's worried about the impact this will have on health disparities in underrepresented communities. Given that this is a medical school. Exactly. Uh Many leaders are waiting to see how it will impact enrollment. It's possible students won't apply to competitive schools who are unable to get around the affirmative action ban, leading them instead to flock to schools with blanket enrollment policies like MSU Denver. Thanks so much. Of course. CPR's Paolo Chalcida. Speaking of higher education, justice is ruled today that President Biden's debt forgiveness program may not proceed. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years a big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. 
we cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The art at Denver's Ellie Culkin's Opera House doesn't just take place on stage. There are pieces on display throughout the venue. One in particular behind the lobby bar got one patron wondering. CPR's Eden Lane has this story. Aurora resident Sarah Wood began attending the opera to support her sister, who enjoys opera, and a good friend who was singing in the chorus. I'm becoming a fan. Turandot is my favorite. Yeah, Turandot is my favorite so far. During one recent visit, Wood took a real interest in the large, multi-story art hung behind the main lobby bar. Every time I go to the opera, I enjoy gazing at the huge tapestry behind the main bar, and I wonder about it. We had to get there pretty early, so there was plenty of time, and it's just enormous, and it really caught my eye. It's fun to look at. I wonder if that's a particular scene from a specific play or musical or opera. I wonder if it's available as a poster or a puzzle. Artist Stephen Batura revealed some of the secrets of this huge piece. For starters, it's not a tapestry at all. It's like a cotton fabric that is used for backdrops. So we got it from a company that does theatrical backdrops. And so it's one piece, and then it is coated with an acrylic medium that makes it sturdier and also changes the way the paint goes into it. It pulls it in like a watercolor painting a little bit. You've heard people mistake it for a tapestry before. Yeah, I think people, I think it's sort of my style of painting is uh, broken into segments. So it tends to look maybe like it's fabric or it's knitted or woven. But yeah, it's all brush strokes. Rudy Cherry is the public art program manager for the city of Denver. He says this piece was commissioned under a decades-old program that sets aside 1% of the cost of every big capital project for art. We have commissioned almost over around 400 pieces from mostly local artists, and we have them all over the city. When the call for submissions went out, Batura knew exactly what space he wanted to create for. I heard that they had a great big wall that was going to be available, and so I aimed at that. What made that appealing to you, that large space? It was a big, a big challenge to have a giant painting like that. And I originally wanted to do it on the wall. Oh. And we got to a certain stage and they said the insurance wouldn't allow me to be working above other people working below. So I would have been on a scaffold painting on the wall. So I did the painting on a piece of fabric at another theater in town called the Elich Theater. The Hesterak Elich Theater. <laughs> yeah, and it was uh, abandoned at that point. Batura's proposal was to show a theater space that would represent all kinds of performances that would take place in the newly renovated theater. The 30-foot piece is titled The Rehearsal. I found pictures of the original curtain in 1908 when they opened the building for the Denver Auditorium, it was called at that time. So that is the original curtain, the way it looked when the building opened. The painting includes more than 200 people, some of whom are inspired by Charles Lillybridge's photos. The artist included an Easter egg next to those people. If you look and see numbers, those are the, they start with an L for Lillybridge, and then there'll be a one, two, three, or four digit number 
that you can look up at the Denver Public Library uh, Western History photographs. Batura included his daughter at nine years old next to himself at the same age. Ellie Calkins and her husband, George Calkins, are depicted. There's even a young John F. Kennedy in the painting. Batura also included his longtime friend, Rudy Cherry. Because I'm friends with Rudy, I've known him a long time. <laughs> and I wanted somebody right dead center at the bottom, taking their shirt or sweater off. And Rudy's a very good dresser. So I had Rudy pose, take the thing off. He didn't know about it till I finished that he was going to be in right at the bottom of the painting. What was your reaction when you saw yourself depicted in this painting? <laughs> well, you know, I'm very pleased. I'm so you know, honored to be in the painting. It's amazing. For now, there are not puzzles or posters of the rehearsal available, but you can try to pick out some of the people and stories the next time you visit the Ellie Calkins Opera House. And tours are available. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Send us your questions about life in Colorado at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mount Snicktow near Dillon is easily accessible from Denver and Boulder, which makes it a popular hike. Before 1926, Mount Snicktow was known as Big Professor, then Engelman Peak. Snicktow was the pen name of Georgetown journalist Edwin Patterson, who said it came from Native Americans. But it was more likely the name of a fellow journalist, W.F. Watkins, spelled backwards, and the W substituted with a U. The hike begins at Loveland Pass with a thousand-foot rise over the first mile. Undaunted hikers are rewarded with unobstructed views of Grays and Tories Peaks and the Gore Range. Even Breckenridge can be seen over the Continental Divide. The trail is entirely above treeline, so hikers may encounter snow at any time of year and strong winds at the summit of 13er Mount Snicktow. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Delta, Colorado, it was the spot for ice cream, the Dairy King on Highway 50. Many love connections were made there, too. A 1950s car hop started by the Huffington family. I remember working there. I remember meeting my husband there. So many people met their spouses there. And I didn't realize how many, but quite a few. That is Judy Huffington. She met and later married the founder's son, Scott, at the Dairy King. The restaurant was shuttered for about 15 years before finding a buyer and a new life as a short-term rental. Scott Elkins purchased it with a business partner and poured close to a quarter million dollars into renovations. Obviously had to rewire it, permitting, city-state, all that pain in the rear stuff. We wanted to keep the flair, the nostalgia of it, and we, we think we did. So we have the rooms are named like cherry chocolate or chocolate banana in one little portion of it. Still has all the flavors on the wall, lemon and tangerine and pound your peach and palisade, cherry. And we've got the jukebox in there. We've got the old video games in there. And of course, ice cream is included in your stay. You may also see the Huffington family's cows peering over the fence from time to time. We'll post pictures soon of the Dairy King old and new at CPR.org. Chef Byron Gomez is as close to his Costa Rican roots as he's been since childhood, roots he's replanted in Boulder. Gomez is a former Top Chef contestant, a disciple of famed French chef 
Daniel Baloud. And now he runs a chicken joint, his words, in a Boulder food hall. Pollo Tico serves the rotisserie chicken Gomez grew up with in Costa Rica, along with the sides his mother made. We met early in the day in March in front of his stall at Avanti Food and Beverage. We are standing in front of eight whole chickens. And chef, this is some of the most beautifully cooked chicken skin I have ever seen. Thank you. (laughs) We take pride in what we do. (laughs) Tell me about how you achieve this perfect brown. That is part of what we're trying to do here. It is something mind-blowing to this market, but for Costa Ricans, it's something so simple that we use with everything, and this is called Salsa Lisano. The Salsa Lisano is a Costa Rican brand that we literally eat it for everything. This is like what Heinz ketchup is to America, Salsa Lisano is to Costa Rica. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 19, 11, 12, 15, 14, probably 14 <laughs> bottles of Salsa Lisano above a food warmer. And now, there's like 20 more in the back just because <laughs> we can't keep it in stock. <laughs> so salsa, of course, just means yeah, sauce, correct. although in the United States, we tend to think of salsa as being a tomato thing. Correct. Th- this is like liquid. Yeah. Think about it like a cross between Worcestershire sauce, sweet and sour, and mustard. And this is available. You will find this in Costa Rican households across the whole country. And what about here in the United States? Uh, we have to get it imported from Costa Rica. Okay. Yes. So while it might not be a secret recipe, people have to come to you essentially to get it. I will say so. Yeah. In the state of Colorado, <laughs> yes. And what does it do for the chicken besides flavor? So it has this natural browning color to it. It's vegan, it's gluten-free, and it's extremely delicious. So what we've done, we brine the chickens for about 24 hours. We take them out of the brine, let them air dry for a little bit, and then right before they go into the rotisserie, we smother them with this salsa lisano. So as this rotating slowly, that Maillard reaction is acting up, and it's browning and caramelizing this beautiful skin that you get this amazing product at the end. Yeah, that's right. Maillard. Correct. Yes, that's where cooking gets almost like chemistry. Yes, it is, for sure. Could we try it? Yes, of course. I don't want to take food from the masses that will be joining you when you No, 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 not at all. I mean, that's what we're here for. You guys came right before the masses come in, so. Do you have a favorite part of the chicken? Uh, The chicken oyster. Oh, tell me what that is. Yes, the chicken oyster. So the chicken oyster is found... Again, this is like a chef's secret. Okay. It's in the back. Oh, you've turned this chicken upside down. Correct. And the chicken oyster is these two little pieces of meat that are hidden behind this crevice. And to me, this is the most tender part of the chicken. So we're going to cut off this. Tell me something. Yes. You grew up, no doubt, with this chicken. Uh, Yes. Did you know about the oyster? No, not until I started working in fine dining restaurants. Uh That that was the secret that chefs would stash when they broke down the chicken. Pollo Tico, (laughs) chicken, and then Tico meaning someone from Costa Rica. Correct. It's like what we call Aussies or we call people here in the U.S. Yankees. Yeah. They call us Ticos. Ticos. Correct. What is the name of this chicken in Costa Rica? Uh, This is just a regular rotisserie style chicken. Almost like street style, home style. Nothing fancy, but it definitely is close to the heart. So if you see, this is the chicken oyster. So we're going to go ahead with our fingers and then just take that out. And it looks incredibly moist. And it's nice and moist. And I'll give you a little piece of the skin. Oh, it's moist, and it's got that rich, darker meat flavor. Correct, yes. And this is this. I'm so excited about this skin. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) 
Oh, it has the perfect crunch. Right? The yes. perfect crunch. Yes, yes. And it's that Salsa Lisano that's doing a lot of the work there. That is what kind of takes this guy and hits the home run. So what it's, else would you use Salsa Lisano for? Uh, in Costa Rica, we use it it's on, on the table. It's what like Tabasco is also oh. here. It's on the table. You add it to everything. And we add it to everything, to our eggs, to our arroz con pollo, to our chicken, to our steak, to our fish. It, it has a million uses. You also have lots of sides. Name one of your favorites. Uh, I mean, we've got to go with a classic called Gallo Pinto, which is a Costa Rican staple. It's rice and beans mixed together, and we cook it in pork lard. It gives it that a little extra oomph, and then we finish it with peppers and onions as well. We are going to talk about your time coming up in Costa Rica, your food memories, yes, and then your arrival into oat cuisine and fine dining. I'm loath to leave these chickens behind, but shall we go find a seat yeah, in yeah, this yeah. food hall? Sure thing, yes. So, Chef, you spent years working in some of New York City's finest restaurants, including Cafe Blue and 11 Madison Park. You were an executive chef in Aspen. But you say that you needed to find yourself in the foods of your native country. And so here you are on Pearl Street in Boulder, happily running what you call a chicken joint. Did you get this whole culinary world advancement thing backwards? I don't think backwards. I think a good chef needs to pivot. I think a good chef needs to um, really think how can they portray the message and who they are and tell their story. The message is who you are. Exactly. I mean, my message is, you know, I'm an immigrant, uh, a very humble upbringing. Although I have that soigné touch to my cooking, that doesn't mean that that was my roots. That being said, that also doesn't mean that my roots are in soigné. You use the term soigné, which is French for basically like fancy. You Correct. Know? And I guess what you're saying is we've lived in a world where French cuisine is fancy and maybe everything else is less fancy. And you're saying France, for instance or any other European nation, doesn't have a corner on the soigné market. I mean, think about it. If you really go to the organic essence of why France is France or Spain is Spain, they took an interest in Latin America. They took their boats, the Niña, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, back in the day, and this is famous captain called Columbus. <laughs> he took an interest in Latin America. And if we are honest with each other, they robbed us from our gold. They saw the value and the riches of what Latin America was, and they brought it back to Spain. It's culinary colonialism, I think. Yeah. You know the dish papillot? I do, like, yes. Okay. So when you take a fish, right. let's say, and the French have perfected it and documented it and, and exposed it to the world, you take a piece of paper, parchment paper typically, you have a fillet of fish in there that you put in raw, you season it, olive oil, salt, and a few little veggies, and you pop it in the oven. And next thing you know, you present the table side in this French fine dining Michelin star way. Exactly. <laughs> the server comes with white gloves and cuts it. And boom, there's the steam and aroma of this beautiful fish fillet that has been cooked. Costa Rica has been doing that way before the French. We just wrap it in banana leaves. We don't go out of the way and kill the tree and then process it to make it into a piece of paper. We actually just take what nature has given us. We wrap it, we either put it on, on embers or we bury it on the ground. When we take it out, we get a steamed, beautiful piece of protein and no one gives us credit for that. 
How did you feel as a kid when that steam would come out? I mean, it brings back memories. It brings back the essence of my culture and who I am. Your family emigrated to the United States and you ended up first in Long Island. Correct. I know that at 15, you went to work at a Long Island Burger King. Yes. What did that teach you? That was my, my eye-opening experience to what I would now consider my career. I was working front cashier, didn't really like it. Although I'm on television and I have a restaurant that's like open to the public and yeah. I, I interact with public, I'm a very shy person. And sometimes, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes I don't understand people. So when I was working front cashier, people will come up to the Burger King register and have a hard time with the menu. And in my mind, I would be like, it's 50 years of the same menu. <laughs> what are you struggling with? <laughs> what are you with? struggling about? <laughs> so <laughs> things like that, I couldn't really voice out. Um, the manager, who was a family friend at that time, brought me to drive through You know, he still wanted to give me a job and saw that I was struggling with certain things. Put me on drive through and at 15 years old, I couldn't really multitask. I couldn't talk over the mic, make change at the window, make the drinks, pressing the buttons to listen to the person making the order. So that was a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. One day, someone called out from the kitchen and they asked me if I wanted to help, at least to prep. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot. You've certainly had done it in the past. With my parents. Yes. Nothing like industrial size uh-huh. or like professionally or chain restaurant type yeah. of thing. And I remember there was this one device that had four legs. It had a handle that you pulled towards you. And closer to you, there was this almost basket with blades. So you would put a tomato on that basket and then pull the lever and then slice the tomato will come out on the other side. Oh. And to me, it was one of the most fascinating things. At 15 years old, I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is some grown-up type of stuff. And I kept on doing that, and I prepped all the tomatoes. I washed all the lettuce. The cheese, we will take it out of the package and then crisscross them. So when you are assembling the sandwich, it's easy to pick out each slice. Ah, as opposed to having to peel apart each time. Exactly. Uh-huh. So all those little things, I started really taking attention and care for it. And that foundation was what built the rest of my career, I would say. Have you ever seen one of those slicers again? Only in fast food restaurants, uh-huh. honestly, yeah. <laughs> you don't have one. We do not okay. have one. <laughs> Gomez told me about his leap into fine dining with French chef Daniel Bouloud. I never went to culinary school. I just worked at mom and pop shops. Yeah. And I told myself at that point I was already cooking for about eight years professionally after Burger King. And I said, okay, this is the time where I'm going to get more serious and step it up a notch. But when I saw the application to apply for one of Daniel Bolu's restaurants, the first thought, again, like everybody shares, is I'm not good enough. This guy has stages, culinary kids that come and do a three-month stint, six-month, one-year stint at his restaurants that have come from the best culinary schools from around the world. Who am I? I'm just mm-hmm. a deadbeat kid that's living in the Bronx, grew up on Long Island, and is an immigrant. But I think, um, what is it? Every shot that you don't take is an opportunity that you miss. Yeah. You miss 100% of the shots, shots you, you don't, don't make. take. Yeah, right. You don't yeah, take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess I made it mine. You <laughs> I did. just kind of flipped I liked it. it. <laughs> yes, it's good. And, and you don't really know how good you are until you're put into these scenarios. 
So I said to myself, after like three weeks of debating whether I should apply or not, what do I have to lose? <laughs> if, you, if you want something to happen new in your life, you have to take risks that you've never taken before. But it was three weeks of, of, of doubt of, and of, wondering of doubt. and churning. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And all it took was fill off something and click, and that was it. And I remember making that click, getting a deep breath inside of my lungs, and just wishing for the best. When I got cold to go for a stage... Yeah, stage, S-T-A-G-E, French for almost internship. Correct. It's a work interview, internship. It could be for three months. It could be for a week. It could be for a day, Mm -hmm. depending on the restaurant establishment. So I went in to Barbaloo. They were still building the both restaurants that I was part of the opening. I was going to be part of the opening. And he's got restaurants in New York and uh, Miami. Yeah, everywhere. Miami. Is there he's Aspen? Got a, no, no. Not, not Aspen. Aspen no. Okay. It just seems At like At that would point, be. he had Beijing. He has Singapore. Uh, he's like all over the map. Uh-huh. Now he has Dubai. I mean, this guy is like the godfather. <laughs> of uh, French cooking, the Don Corleone of French <laughs> cooking here in the U.S. So uh, to have the opportunity to be working for such a esteemed chef, it makes you proud of the, all the efforts that you're making. How long did you get to be with him then? I was with him for five years. He was, I still to this day call him Papa. He is my, one of my biggest mentors. His restaurants, his establishment, his style was my culinary school. This is the one chef that I worked for the longest period of time. Uh-huh. And this was where I got my strongest foundation in classical French cuisine. You were clearly a success because he kept you on. Correct. Your next gig was being a contestant on season 18 of Bravo's Top Chef. This is a, a cooking competition known for grinding down even the most <laughs> unflappable contestants. The secret of staying in a competition for so long for me was just be yourself. Every day you get a wrench thrown at you. And it's just having that confidence, which, which is hard. Did you go into that with doubt? Of or course. You, oh, of course? I mean... You hadn't mastered doubt at that point? I, I don't think people... I mean, if you say that you're not scared of going in front of national television and you've honed your skills for the past 18 years, and you go in there and you see other people who are just from different cultures, different backgrounds, and we're all trying to compete into this one thing. And every day you're getting questioned about your food, your technique. You know, 18 years later, doing the same thing, you think you mastered it, and then you go on a shopping block, and they're like, well, it needed this, it needed that. And then you're, you, you're taking away your cell phone, your laptop, your books. You're disconnected from the outside world. <sighs> you don't know what day it is. You're told <laughs> what to do, where to be. The element of surprise is lurking at every corner. Of course it messes with you after a while. <laughs> uh-huh. It almost, as you described it, it almost sounds like drills in a military academy. I mean, you're getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. You have to be ready by 6. You're not done shooting by the time uh, 11 or 12 midnight. You're going for about 17, 18 hours, three months straight. It will break you down. Uh (laughs) But it'll make everything else you do look easy. (laughs) I mean, you build a tough skin, that's for sure. Yeah. A tough skin. Now I'm thinking of the chicken skin again. (laughs) Damn you. Byron, thank you so much for the time and the taste. This was awesome. Thank you. It was great talking to you guys. 
Chef Byron Gomez of Poyotico on Pearl Street in Boulder. He was a season 18 Top Chef finalist. We spoke in March. We've posted his rice and beans recipe, Gallo Pinto, at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. And that is the show for today, with thanks to these chickens. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nancy Lawful. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.